RPC Radio. Radio. Hello, you're listening to Insurance Covered. Welcome to the podcast that covers anything and everything to do with insurance. Coming up in this episode, why do you think that the decisions now for short-term profit should take into account long-term issues? I hope you're playing the devil's advocate when asking this question, Peter, because, you know, the risks that a company takes thinking short-term are many. My name is Peter Mansfield. I'm a partner in the law firm RPC, and in each episode I am joined by a guest and we discuss an aspect of the wonderful world of insurance. And this week we have Klisman Murati, and we're going to discuss the benefits of long-term thinking. Klisman is the founder and CEO of Pareto Economics, which is a consultancy that advises investors, businesses and policymakers on world affairs. He regularly speaks on a wide range of topics, such as the future of fintech, energy transition, the widening wealth gap, changing demographics and the effectiveness of ESG. And he's been a guest on the BBC, Radio 5 Live, Al Jazeera and many other media outlets. The question he asks himself and asks of us is this, how will the world be changed and challenged in the next 100 years and how should we respond? In other words, how can we think long term? And that is what we're going to discuss today. So, Klisman, welcome to the podcast. Um, where did you develop your interest in global affairs and, and in, in the sort of the big picture stuff? So, I come from a post-communist Albania. And essentially, when my parents decided to move to the UK, the conversations around the dinner table were never one that I would hear friends of mine have. So, it was never about you know, what we're going to do on holiday or or what's on TV, or sort of general chit-chat like this. It was always about what's happening back home. It was always about the political economic system. And from a very early age, I was sort of indoctrinated in thinking about the world in very systemic ways, out of necessity. And something that I always wanted to research as I uh, got older was why was there such a big difference between societies? So it comes from a very personal place, the one that I practice uh, professionally now as well. As I was reading up about you, um, I, was, I was trying to work out kind of what your <laughs> what your job title is, and because obviously I've come across kind of futurists or futurologists, and according to Wikipedia, that's you know people who kind of attempt to explore predictions and possibilities um, about the future. Is that what you are? Would you describe yourself as a futurist, or or or, or how would you put it? How do you express what what you contribute? Well, futurism is a very interesting topic. You know, a few words or names come to mind. You know, you have like people like Nostradamus, even Nietzsche comes to mind when you talk about futurism. But uh, perhaps world affairs eschatologist, if you want to be fancy about it. But I don't think that would look too good on a business card. That sounds great. That sounds great. I, I, I'm, I'm very happy to go with world affairs eschatologist. I think that's, that's, that's very apocalyptic, which seems somehow appropriate at the moment, given all the news. Uh, so uh, you and I, I should say, you, you and I first met back at uh, a seminar uh, in June uh, and the seminar was called The Future of Insurance. And in that seminar, you'd asked a question um, and you asked the panellists the following question or, or you know, in summary, um, how can we encourage insurers to think more long term and analyse where the world is moving and more importantly, why it is moving in that direction? Why did you ask that question and, and, and what was behind it? Because I really wanted to gauge 
the um, the appetite of the panelists, which I guess represented the insurance world to some extent, and their thoughts on answering these two key questions, why and what. And I think the what, I mean, what's happening across the world is something which uh, you don't really need to be an expert to answer, but unfortunately, many analysts focus their attentions on what's happening across the world. But why it's happening is something which very few people can focus on. And I wanted to find out whether that question is something that um, the insurance world, or at least the panelists, think about in their day-to-day lives. First and foremost, I mean, we talk about long-term thinking. What sort of period, for many people, would say five years was was a long-term? What sort of period are you looking at? Yeah, well, we set our mindset and thinking over the next 100 years. It's a case of framing your mindset to think more long-term. Funny enough, Peter, do you know the one only other organization that I know of, which also has a 100-year time period? Would you care to guess what entity that is? Religions of some description? I don't know. No. The Chinese Communist Party has a doctrine where it looks 100 years into the future. That's the only other entity that I could find when creating this company and creating my thoughts around it that has that long-term outlook. You may say, well, you know, China has the ability to do so because it's not under the uh, the system of democracy where they change leaders every four to five years and policy doesn't have the ability to change. But if you don't develop long-term thinking, you end up making very short-term decisions. And the issues we're facing in the world today, be they the energy transition, be they ESG concerns, be they geopolitical concerns, having a short-term mindset is corrosive against developing long-term strategies. I mean, lots of people will, will hear that and think, well, that's interesting. But the immediate response to that will be, well, hang on a moment. If if you went back to 1922 and we were having this conversation then, would we in any sense have even the trends that have happened over the last 100 years, would we have even got close to considering what they were? So looking forward 100 years just seems to be I would query the use of looking that far ahead. But I think if I was back in 1922, looking into to the, the future, the one thing that would, would make it much more easier for you to forecast what the future would be like is to really have a grand understanding or, or a grand strategy of seeing, again, why is the world changing the way it is? And being able to answer the why is key to forecasting how and where uh, the world will change the most. And that's what we've developed. So we have an understanding based on our centers of power concept. Essentially, what we're saying is that each nation, each country has the ability to secure its interests, which is how we define power, the ability of a nation state to secure their own interests. And if you were to look at the United States in 1922, look at Great Britain in 1922, and many countries which weren't even countries, which then became countries, and seeing how their centers of power were at that given time, and to see what the ambitions of the leadership were, you could, I think, accurately forecast to see where the biggest problems will arise, who the biggest players will be, and how things will play out on macro terms for business and also for policymaking. That's something which doesn't take, you know, a Nostradamus to develop. It just takes accurate data and it takes a point of view in the world, which, uh, like Occam's razor, kind of cuts through any superfluous analysis of the world takes away your subjectivity and looks at the facts and numbers and the ambitions of each country as they develop their centers of power. Okay, I mean, that, that's fascinating. It's a question I was going to ask a, a little bit later on, but I, I think I'll, I'll bring it in now, mm-hmm. which is, I mean, the, 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 there are these two 
images of history and and therefore the future. There's this macro one, which is a bit like you know that book, Prisoners of Geography, and you know the countries are restricted by their geography. But so there's the macro stuff, and the question I would ask about that is. Is it fair to say that the future is determined by the present? Is the future inevitable? So that's one issue. Mm-hmm. The second issue is there are things like the, the, the invention of birth control yeah. has transformed history and things like the discovery of penicillin as well. Yeah, yeah things like that, yeah. And, and you know, smallpox um, vaccination. Those are, as individual things, are, are, are not predictable. You know, we do not know what small change is going to happen in 10, 20, 30 years' time, which actually may transform everything. Um, so I suppose the question, that's a long-winded way of saying the question is, to what extent is your view determined by the, the macro, the big trends, the big movements in history, and to what extent is it actually the, the smaller issues, which you know the individual moments, like invention of birth control, invention of penicillin, which transform things? Well, I think this deserves probably a better explanation of our thoughts on this. So, to actually give names to the six centers of power, they include a nation's active consumer market, their military balance, their technological leadership, their systemically important commodities, their geo-strategic positioning, like you mentioned, and their financial strength. So we're saying a nation state, which is the most powerful entity that we have today, you know, they, they surpass companies, they surpass organizations like the IMF, etc. And these six areas are sort of ways in which they can secure their own interests. So all of the centers of power have been created into sub-indices, which have been, has been created into a super index, which is called the global power index, which is how we measure a country's trajectory. So if you truly understand this concept and how we can apply to your business, you're in a much better position to understand macro trends into the future. Going back to the second point, you know, small incremental changes which can revolutionize the world. It's not so much about what these things will be, but more about what impact they'll have over what time period and for who. So, for example, if a country has a very strong R&D focus in helping companies develop innovations, and we'll most likely see more innovations like the kinds that you talked about in those parts of the world. Countries which have a less of a focus and which have lower uh, COP center of power scores or, or, or the ability to do so will most likely see less innovation in those parts of the world. And from there, you'll be able to see over the next 10, 20 years, which parts of the world will essentially dictate or uh, dominate the conversation in innovation and which parts of the world will be receivers of this innovation. And this is what we're seeing play out in the world today. On one level, this is a discussion which is, you know, which is beyond insurance. Um, but ultimately, this is an insurance podcast. So why does insurance need to be concerned about developments that may or may not take place in the next 10, 50, 100 years? But mo- most businesses uh, and insurers are included in this are, are more concerned about the next quarter, the next, you know, maybe a five-year plan at most. But why do you think that the decisions now for short-term profit should take into account long-term issues? Now, I hope you're playing the devil's advocate when asking this question, Peter, because you know the risks that a company takes thinking short-term are many. First of all, the benefits of thinking long-term and having 
this concept that we've developed as part of your thinking is great for many reasons. One, fantastic for product development, seeing what risks could come up in the future and how we can help provide insurance for that, looking at new market opportunities in new parts of the world as the world develops in different ways. Also to improve your premium calculations. If an actual scientist were to look at the situation, perhaps using this way of thinking and thinking more long-term by using metrics, which matter to them, in their premium calculations and getting it more and more correct will again help the bottom line of these insurers and these underwriters risk mitigation in different ways if you can think and if you can have a concept of how the world will develop and more importantly why you think it's going to develop that way and it turns out to be accurate then again you're in a much better position to mitigate risk and also fundamentally you can have a first mover advantage in many parts of the insurance world where your competitors may not have that thinking may be too afraid to think long-term or don't have the appetite to think long-term or don't have the expertise to think long-term. If you can bring on uh, companies or, or vendors or have thinking within your organization, which can allow you to have a much more robust way of thinking, then, you know, it's a no-brainer to do so for the reasons I mentioned right now. I, I guess kind of putting that in a different way is, and I hope this isn't too simplistic, but where we are at the moment, the future is inevitably going to happen kind of there is going to be a future going ahead and that will affect insurers it will affect businesses and therefore it pays for those insurers to think about what that future is going to look like yeah and therefore put things in place now for then is that a fair summary yeah yeah i think so i think the two groups of industry which perhaps have much more respect or an appreciation of how world affairs can impact them is the insurance world and it's also the oil and gas and mining world, you know, because both of these organizations by their nature need to work in parts of the world which are perhaps less understood and more risky. And therefore you have corporations who are more risk averse to go into these parts of the world. So I think these two groupings have much more of an appreciation of how world affairs impacts their business and their clients' businesses. So when I have conversations with them, I think there's an innate understanding of the importance of these things. And if we can add our own thinking, which can help uh, you know, filling in gaps of knowledge or help frame their thinking in a way which is much more useful, then it's um, it's something which they value, I see. And it's something that we love working on as an organization. So it helps both parties. And I mentioned that we met at the seminar um, back in June. And as we were discussing it at the seminar and as the, the panelists were discussing the future of insurance, the one thing that really struck me was the increasing interconnectedness of risk um so you know many many moons ago insurers would insure a ship going from a to b or would insure a car driving around a city but but now we have this much more globalized interconnectedness of, of, of risk so you know a disease that starts thousands of miles away on the other side of the world ends up affecting businesses in in milton Keynes and, and milwaukee um how a war on the other side of europe is affecting our gas supplies and our inflation around the globe and energy costs kind of in homes in, in Bristol. Um, how fossil fuels burned 100 years ago in Manchester uh, or whatever are, are now interacting with everything else to cause hurricanes in Florida and, and wildfires in, in California and Australia. So is the role, is, is your role effectively pulling all these pieces of the puzzle together? and advising clients, okay, you may not have thought about this, but actually you do need to think about it. Essentially, in a short answer, yes. 
But in simple terms, my role is to help clients make better business strategy and policy making decisions. And we do this by addressing what we call the global four. The four things which will impact the world the most, we're saying over the next 100 years are the following. Globalization, geopolitics, transformative technology, and societal change. These are the four things or the global four. What we're saying, which no matter if you're a, a dentist in Milwaukee, whether you're a you know engineer in Tristan de Kuna, whether you are a, uh, a director of a company in Zimbabwe, at least one of the four of the global four will impact your life significantly over your lifetime, which is why it's so important to have this focus on the global four as products of countries developing their senses of power. And if you can do that effectively, then we've uh, done our job. So you said uh, globalization, uh, geopolitics, transformative technology, and societal change. That's right. Let's, I mean, we've already touched upon the globalization. That's, that's what I've described as this inter- interconnectedness of risk. But geopolitics, so I know that there's a technical definition for geopolitics. So, so first of all, what's that? And why is geopolitics relevant? Yeah, I think uh, I, I, you've done your research, I think, because um, I have been very frustrated when I hear, for example, political risk used interchangeably with geopolitical risk. And especially within the insurance world, I mean, political risk can be insured. Geopolitical risk can't be insured because it's not a concept which is recognized. And the difference is that political risk are the risks that emerge within the borders of a country, which are caused by the state, which are caused by the government. And geopolitical risk is essentially the activities and the results of ongoings between countries. So what we're seeing now between Russia and Ukraine, that's a geopolitical risk. Things like Brexit can be seen as a geopolitical risk as well, because it's, again, it's the UK breaking away from the EU and issues in relation to that. But it can also be a political risk, given the problems that can emerge out of something like Brexit. And we don't want to, you know, raise the dead on that topic at all because that's a podcast for a different day. Um, but that would be, in my mind, the main difference between the two concepts. And uh, the third one was transformative technology. I think we can probably kind of work that out. So over the last 30 years, then obviously creation of the, the internet would be the most transformative. But presumably, this goes back to your point earlier on, does it? Which is that, that those countries which are investing most in research in technology are the ones who are most likely to come up with transformative technology. Is that it or is it, does it go beyond that? Well, and actually, it does go beyond that. But for simplicity's sake, we're saying that, uh, you know, compound development is a real thing. So countries or regions like Europe, which historically have had, you know, much more favorable geostrategic positioning than continents like Africa, for example, you can see that compounding, you know, effects happen. So Europe has had better access to ports, which allowed them to be sort of the center of trade, commerce, culture, industry over time. And then that compounded over the industrial revolutions and different waves of that over time. So now, the parts of the world which were disadvantaged in the past due to their lack of development on these centers of power, you know, remain so, which is why we see parts of the world which have grown, but not at the same rates as countries which have had a head start. And over time, a Pareto distribution occurred, which is what we're named after, Alfredo Pareto, the famous Italian engineer and uh, economist, who said that those who win keep winning, and that sort of the, the, the colloquially termed 80-20 rule emerges in terms of power across the world. And that's what we measure. And that's how technology is reflected by those who are doing well, continually to do well, and exporting technologies to different parts of the world, which is why 
no matter where you are, you have WhatsApp, you have Facebook, you have technologies which have been created, not only in the country, but in a specific state, right? Within a specific neighborhood of the state, Silicon Valley, now being exported across the world. China now is challenging that in different ways because they're developing their senses of power to the level where they can challenge that technological status, uh, status quo, which is why conversations around Huawei and, and internet security and things of this nature become important. So you talked about globalization, geopolitics, technology, and societal change. Um, I mean, the big issue, maybe as part of all of those, is the environment. So, But you don't have the environment and climate change as a, as a separate issue. Why is that? Well, we do have it, in fact. Um, but before I get to, to, to it, when you say environment, Peter, what do you exactly mean by that? I Okay, I, I, I mean two things. Um, so there's climate change. But there's uh, pollution um, and biodiversity degradation. So that's what I mean by environment. So that is covered by our, uh, our, our, our global four, because the environment, in the way that we analyze it, is analyzed as a source of change and as a result of change. So it's an effect and an affect. And the environment changing is as important as the effects that has on society. And that could be seen through the global four in many different ways. So environment in different ways is very much so included in our matrix of analysis. I mean, we're seeing floods happening across the world, Venice, Bangladesh, famously, and the actual population movements because of these things into more inland areas, into already congested cities, is going to be and is a very big problem for many different reasons. So if you can see the trajectory of how that will impact the world, you can see it as both cause and effect of societal change, of geopolitics, of globalization, of transformative technology, creating solutions to that. These four things encapsulate every aspect of human creative development that is out there only because these things are becoming much more relevant. And our theory is that over time, these four things are going to converge. So we call this the great convergence. So these four things over time are going to simultaneously impact societies equally in different parts of the world. And if you have a short-term way of thinking, you'll never be able to provide a solution, which is why we stress long-term, and which is why we stress the Global Four as focus points for any business or any government we work with. Is there a risk that this sort of thinking creates a myth of, of knowledge and understanding in what is ultimately an uncertain and randomly unpredictable world. I know on your website you say that the future is on a trajectory that can be understood. And I get that to some extent, but I think it was Harold Macmillan when he was asked about the predictions and he said, well, events, dear boy, events. You know, it's all very well kind of trying to get a handle on the things that are going to drive the future but something is going to happen that is completely left field and unexpected. What, what's your response to that? Well, well, if you could, if you could give me an example of something through, through, throughout history which has been so left field, um, then I think you'd struggle to find five examples throughout history because these things are just so rare, you know. They are, but that's partly because as soon as something happens, it looks inevitable. I'll give you the perfect example of something which is really relevant now. COVID, okay? COVID hits, the world panics, and especially the business community, the insurance community and others don't know how to analyze it. They don't know how it will impact the world as much only because 
this crisis, which impacts an economy, hasn't, be, hasn't and wasn't created by the bankers, wasn't created by the business community. It was created by biology and better understood by the medical community, right? But it's impacted the business world. And when was the last time, Peter, you've seen out in the city of London, sort of a medical doctor hanging out with a banker talking about world affairs? It doesn't happen because people are in their own silos. But when something like COVID hits, you need to be able to talk and get opinions and insights from those in the know. So for the medical community, um, they were much more prepared in understanding what the, what the spread of this was like. So for that community, it wasn't as much of a surprise because that's what they study. But for the business community, it came as such a shock. So which, which is why I say there are very few things in the world which, have, which can't be understood by anyone. You know, because there are pockets of, of, of professions which can understand it, but having mass appreciation, mass knowledge transfer is where the problem comes up. And this is where people say the world is, um, is unpredictable. And the world can't be as unpredictable as people say it is because how can anyone plan for anything? You know, if you say, well, tomorrow I can walk out on the street and get hit by a car, what's the point of doing anything? So at some level, the world has got trajectories that can be understood. And we say that our point of view on how to look at the world gives you better opportunities to see and forecast the future of the world. And that's why I say, and the company says, the world is not as unpredictable and there is a trajectory that can be understood if you look at the factors which cause things, the why and not only the how. Because if you focus only on the how, then you always be jumping from crisis to crisis, whether it's Brexit, the trade war, COVID, Ukraine, Russia, now Taiwan, who knows what happens in the future. If you believe who knows is actually a thing, then you always be jumping from crisis to crisis. Don't do that, but rather focus on the why and you'll be in a much better position to forecast for your own company, for your own life as well. I think that you made a point about silo thinking, and I think I think actually that that may well sort of hit the nail on the head of, of what we've been discussing. And I, I guess that that would be your role to to come in and pull all these threads together and say to the political risk underwriter, "Have you thought about epidemiology recently?" Mm. That I would say your role may well be a an outside the silo thinker, someone who pulls silos together and. and creates that sort of cross-fertilization of ideas that without wishing to overstate it it's sort of the polymath approach to life someone who understands a lot about a lot of things and is able to draw from far distant thought processes and sciences and research studies draw them all together into one place one thing i wanted to go back to before we end which i think is really important and it was a really good question you asked but i didn't have a chance to go into it where you said um is the future inevitable mm. Is there a sort of a deterministic nature of where we're going? You know? So um, what I'd say to that is um, there's a concept that, again, I've developed called the illusion of the second path, which essentially says that if the world could be different, it would be different. So the normative way of looking at the world compared to the positive way, which is sort of an economic term of how the world is and how the world should be, or looking at it through a qualitative lens, is a useless practice because every decision that we've made collectively, as humans, has been for our own self-interest. And actually, not everyone has the ability, resources, etc., to secure their own interests. So what happens again is compound development takes hold. And those who have the big stability tend to win out over time, which again, that prey to the distribution curve arises. Which is why I think, you know, individuals like Yanis Varoufakis, so the ex-treasurer of uh, Greece, you know, his ideas of how the world should be, how we should make capitalism change. These, I, these conversations, I think, are futile in my uh, perspective, only because 
decisions that we made so far have impacted us in the way that we've wanted them to impact us because they were made by those who were in power to benefit who they thought uh, were important. Meaning the EU was created for Europeans. It wasn't created to help benefit, you know, sub-Saharan Africa. But if we look at what is the nature of human change and nature of development, I would say my answer to that would be self-interest. So we create institutions and we create processes which make our lives easier. So, but the concept of, you know, the world should be this way. Well, if it should have been that way, it would have been that way. And what we don't do is sometimes look at the progress we've made as society to see, look at what we've created, something like the United Nations. So I would caution against thinking about the world should be this way and listening to people who have that perspective, because unless it's based on facts, unless it's based on realities, then any talk like that doesn't take into consideration what motivates human change, which is self-interest. I'm not sure whether that's a hopeful end or a, or a slightly... It's a realistic end, I suppose, to our conversation. But, I mean, that was absolutely fascinating. I, I suppose, Clisman, my very final question is, is there one takeaway point that you want to leave us with at the end of this podcast? I'm sure the insurance world is the prime target market for this, is for the, the decision makers of these organisations. What I urge them all to do is to conduct an MOT of your organisation and your skill sets and your knowledge base. Or you could hire us to do it if you'd like. Uh, to find out where your strengths and weaknesses are and then go about improving your weaknesses and reinforcing your strengths. And that means going out and speaking and cross-fertilizing, you know, your knowledge base. So becoming a bumblebee or using a bumblebee to cross-fertilize your knowledge bases because having that as an ability makes you much more in tune with what's going to arise over the horizon, which makes you much more prepared and much more confident for the future. Thank you, Clisman. That was absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. RPC Radio. Radio. Thank you so much for listening to Insurance Covered, which is an RPC production made possible by Joe Burgess and Mary Mitchell. If you enjoyed this podcast, you will also love our other podcasts, Taxing Matters and Money Covered, plus The Fix, which is co-hosted by my colleague Kelly Thompson. If you want to be a guest on Insurance Covered, please email me at peter.mansfield at rpc.co.uk. Thank you, and I hope you have a great day.